Now let's turn back to the passage that Will read for us earlier in the service. If you're using a church Bible, you'll find it, I think, on page 1061, Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, and it's the section beginning at verse 13 and going on from there that I want us particularly to uh, look at. I don't know if uh, youngsters still read Hamlet in school, uh, but those of you who at least have seen the movies of Hamlet uh, will remember the, the rather brilliant device that Shakespeare uses in that play when Hamlet, who suspects that his new stepfather has murdered uh, his own father and taken his place as king, is uh, beside himself with the thought. And then he discovers that there's a troop of traveling performers passing through town. And he has this brilliant idea, the plays, the thing, wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. And he gets them to put on a drama that mimics the way in which Hamlet believes his father uh, was murdered. Uh, Bedlam, of course, breaks out. And uh, if you've ever seen Hamlet on stage, it uh, is, as they say, a very cathartic experience to see all these bodies lying on the stage. And the device he uses is he brings the story to a climax, he brings the play to a climax through a play within the play. And I mention that because Luke used that device centuries before. He brings the story of Jesus to a climax by a journey. So what's significant about that? It is that the unique thing about Luke's gospel that differentiates it from Matthew and Mark and John is that the bulk of Luke's gospel takes place on a journey to Jerusalem. From chapter 9, you remember when Luke tells us Jesus set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem, everything that happens in the rest of the gospel until now happens on that journey. And now Luke ends the story with another journey, a journey within the journey that explains the significance of the journey. A short journey, a Sunday afternoon journey that explains the inner significance of the journey that Jesus has taken to Jerusalem. And fascinatingly, uh, in between the beginning of the great journey and this journey, Luke has told us again and again and again that Jesus was going to Jerusalem, he was going to die, he was going to rise again in triumph, and he makes it very clear that they, that they simply could not take it in. And now he begins this journey 
with two disciples on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus on the first Sunday of uh, Easter, and uh, they're still in the same position. And in a marvelous way, on this journey, they are brought from their eyes being closed to their eyes being opened. And in fact, you might have noticed in the reading that Luke makes it crystal clear. It's as though he's saying you would need to be blind to miss the point of this journey. The point of this journey is that here were these people who began the journey essentially still spiritually blind and ended the journey able to see. They had, as we discover here, they'd heard uh, what the women had experienced. It, it certainly looks as though they hadn't yet heard of Mary's encounter with Jesus described in John chapter 20. And for whatever reason, they have left the other disciples, the small group of disciples whom they encounter again later on in this passage. And in all likelihood, they're on their way home. They live in the village of Emmaus, some seven miles away. And the way the story ends, I think, makes it fairly clear that at the end of these seven miles, they have arrived at home. And also at the end of these seven miles, they have arrived in a discovery of the truth of the gospel. Another way of putting it would be this. Luke writes this gospel for somebody called Theophilus. You'll find that in the opening verses. It's not very clear whether Theophilus was a person or not. We don't know anything about Theophilus. But his name really means friend of God, somebody who loves God. If he was an individual, then Luke is thinking of him as somebody like uh, one of those people in the ancient world who was attracted to the Jewish faith, but was always somewhat on the outside, attracted to its ethic, but perhaps not fully understanding its message. And the whole purpose of this gospel then, if Theophilus is an individual, or if he is addressing people who are friendly disposed to God, as it were, the whole purpose of this gospel is to explain the gospel. And in a marvelous way in these verses, the gospel of Luke is explained on the road to Emmaus. And I want us to think about the stages through which these two are brought, uh, Cleopas and his companion. Because you can see that they, they are walked by Jesus through a whole series of stages until at the end they are so spiritually alive. It's almost like, for those of you who are my age, it's almost like the picture on the back of Fry's Five Boys. You remember those boys who went from a state of being uh, disconsolate to uh, having this uh, joy of having the chocolate bar. And I want us to, to try and, and watch them as though we were a kind of uh, Palestinian bee 
hovering around Jesus and these two uh, when Jesus caught up with them on the road to Emmaus. Because when we encounter them, first of all, we see that recognition of Jesus is withheld from them. Uh, They are, uh, Luke tells us, very perplexed. Verse 14, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and they were, it looks as though in verse 15, they may even have been debating with one another from the language that's used, maybe even arguing with one another. And Jesus appears. But verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, it it would be possible for that simply to be a very human thing. After all, they clearly didn't expect to meet him on the road to Emmaus. They they, uh, are discouraged and disconsolate when Jesus speaks to them at at one point. Their eyes are on the ground. Uh, They're a bit like Mary in John chapter 20. Jesus is there, but she's so preoccupied that she she doesn't recognize him until his, his accent breaks through the blur. But it rather looks here as though more is intended, uh, that there is a providence of God, a special providence of God, that they do not recognize Jesus until Jesus has fully explained to them the significance of his presence. And I think it's important to notice Jesus is, the, Jesus is the central figure here. And as you go through these verses, you can see that. First of all, he appears as a listener. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a marvelously told narrative, isn't it? There they are talking to one another. Maybe they're Cleopas and Mrs. Cleopas. The passage isn't clear, except they arrive at their own home, apparently. And uh, perhaps they don't even hear the footsteps behind them. Uh, They're talking away. They're animated at points. And then they realize somebody's beside them. And maybe they have that moment. You've had that moment when (laughs) you think, I hope they didn't hear what I was saying because I was talking about them. Except they don't know that they were talking about the stranger and the stranger has picked up the direction of the conversation. And it's interesting to see what he does, isn't it? Um, This actually would be a marvelous illustration for us of, of how do we speak to people? What does Jesus do? Well, the thing he doesn't do is to say, it's me! Because he wants to do something in their hearts. And so, the stranger who begins as the listener becomes the questioner, the inquirer. Uh, You see what he's doing. This is such an important principle in Jesus' ministry. He constantly asks other people questions. He doesn't just blurt out things. He asks them questions because He wants to, he, in a sense, he needs to discover exactly where they are. What do they understand? What do they not understand? And so he he becomes a questioner. And then the questioner becomes the teacher. 
He says to them, you, you, you silly bullies. Let me explain this to you. And then, near the end of the story, he becomes the guest. And you can see that there's something here that it looks as though they themselves are experiencing, but are not able to, they're not able to put a label on it. But their relationship to Jesus is being transformed. And that emerges finally when Jesus, who comes into their house at the guest, plays the part of the host. And he is the one who takes the bread at the meal and breaks it, blesses it, gives it to them. And it's at that moment, and this is really interesting, isn't it? It's not when, let me put it this way, Jesus was preaching the sermon to them that they recognized him. But it was, it was later on when it dawned on them. In a way, this is a little like what Jesus says in, in Revelation 3.20, isn't it? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice… And that's what's happening here. They're, they're like Mary. They're beginning to hear His voice and opens the door. I will come in and sup with Him and He with me. And of course, I think the reason Luke is, is gives us this narrative at the end, unlike the other gospel writers, is partly because this is something that happened on the first Easter Sunday but also partly because he wants to say to Theophilus, Theophilus, this is how Jesus usually brings us to faith in himself. So, the first stage of this journey is a stage in which recognition is withheld. The second stage in the journey is, of course, the stage in which the Scriptures are expounded. And this, too, is very fascinating when you think about it. A journey of seven miles, you know, pretty hardy couple, presumably. Rotten roads. This is, not, this is not the M1 without cars. Rotten roads. So, so this is presumably a good two-hour journey. Um, and at least at one point, they stop. And you can imagine, you know, if you're, going, if you're going for a walk and you're engaged in serious conversation, you're not usually doing four miles an hour. But let's say it takes them a couple of hours, and, and what they have here is a, is a private seminar with the Lord Jesus in which He expounds the Scriptures to them. Now, that's something we should really notice for this reason. What did Jesus do? It's interesting what He did. It, actually, it's counterintuitive what He did. If I were making up this story, I would say, Jesus said to them, but it's me, Jesus. But he doesn't. What he does is he takes them to the Scriptures. Now, isn't that interesting? Jesus, who is the Lord of the Scriptures, takes them to the Scriptures. Now, why does he do that? 
Perhaps the reason Luke really wanted to get hold of this passage to help Theophilus and to help others was because he was saying, this is how Jesus does it. He, he doesn't appear in the middle of the room and say, look, it's me. He comes and he speaks to us through the Scriptures. And he shows them, you notice, in verse 27, how Moses and all the prophets were pointing towards him. He opens the Scriptures to them and teaches them how in the Old Testament Scriptures, everything was pointing towards him. C.H. Spurgeon, the famous 19th century English preacher, used to say about preaching that there just as there is a road that will get you to London from every town and hamlet in England, there is a road to Jesus from everywhere in the Old Testament Scriptures. But you can't go through the Old Testament Scriptures in a couple of hours. And you do wish that that bee that I imagined flying behind them, uh, O bee, live forever and come to St. Peter's and then speak to us and tell us what passages did Jesus use. But I think there is actually a clue in the text. You'll notice what uh, Jesus says. You've been slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures, the things concerning themselves. But notice what he says in verse 26. What he focuses attention on is that the Christ, the Savior, would suffer and then enter His glory. And I think that's a pretty clear indication to us. Now, you know, I believe with all my heart that Jesus was a much more succinct preacher than most of us are. But there's no amount of succinctness gets you through the Old Testament in two hours. And I think this is the clue that what He pointed them to would be those passages in the Old Testament Scriptures that demonstrated that this was God's way of salvation, that when the Savior came, the Savior would suffer, and through that suffering would enter His glory. Now, what might those be? Well, we could have a catechism quiz now, guess the passage, but I suspect one of them was right tucked away there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The very first promise that there would be a Redeemer is a promise of a Redeemer who would suffer and then enter glory. You remember what the promise was? That God would put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, but the day would come when a particular seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, not the serpent's seed, but the serpent itself. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, even while his own heel was being crushed. So that right from the very beginning, the promise of a redeemer, a deliverer, a conqueror, a savior, it already said that this will take place through the Savior's suffering. And then, for example, we might 
think of a passage like Psalm 22, which might be particularly significant in this case because if Cleopas here is the same person as Clopas, who is mentioned as being the husband of one of the women who witnessed Jesus' crucifixion, and speculating that this was Mrs. Cleopas. Now, those are two different names, but people in those days operated with two different names, a, a name for the, for the Palestinian community and a name that would be recognized outside of it. So, speculating for a moment doesn't change the point, but speculating for a moment. If this stranger had uh, said, do you remember Psalm 22? And uh, Mrs. Cleopas had said, just, just, you know, I'm sure I learned that, uh, my mother's knee, but just, just give me a little clue about how it begins. And, uh, and Cleopas had said, that's the one that begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If this was the woman, now I'm speculating, doesn't change the point, but if this was the woman, that must have rocked her on her heels. It would have given her something to contribute to the stranger. The last time I heard these words were from the one we hoped would redeem Israel. When he was hanging on the cross, he cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if that was one of the passages, I have no doubt the stranger would have said, was he mumbling when he recited the rest of the psalm? You know what's in the rest of the psalm. It is the one who has been conscious of being under the judgment of God for the sins that have been laid upon his shoulders, rises again in triumph and victory, and it's through suffering he enters into his glory. But even if he didn't refer to Genesis 3.15, although I hope he did, and Psalm 22, which I'd love to think he did, I'm pretty certain he must have referred to Isaiah 52 and 53, don't you think? Isaiah 53, which I was, religious education when I was a wee boy, was memorizing chunks of the Bible. It was ghastly, but I'm very grateful for it now. So all my life I've known Isaiah 53 off by heart in the King James Version, who have believed our report, etc. But my teacher didn't understand it well enough to know that Isaiah 53 actually begins at the end of Isaiah 52. Behold my servant, exalted, and yet marred beyond human semblance. And then this heart-wrenching passage about how he would be despised and rejected of men, but you read on and it goes through suffering to glory and triumph and to the salvation of his people. He would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, chastisement to bring us peace would be upon him. With his stripes we would be made whole. We, like sheep, have gone astray, turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it ends with him sharing the fruit of his suffering in the salvation of sinners. And the stranger is saying to them, 
but you know these verses. You should have, you should have understood these verses. So if the first stage is that recognition is withheld, the second stage is that the Scriptures are expounded. And the third stage, which is only mentioned at the end of the passage when Jesus has disappeared, but is actually a description of what happened during the walk. Did you notice that when Will was reading it? When Jesus departed from them, uh, they said to each other, this is is such an interesting thing. Uh, this is why I think they probably were husband and wife. You get some inkling of what has been going on in you, is maybe going on in her, or vice versa. And uh, look at what they said to each other. Cleopas, did you feel what I felt? When he was talking to us on the way, I felt my heart was burning within me. So this was something that happened before their eyes were opened. As he took them through the Scriptures, they, they were experiencing something. And I think you can understand why this was such a big, this was such a big story to Luke. Because this was the kind of thing he'd, he'd seen happen. He'd heard Paul talk about this. He'd, I wonder if he was thinking about Lydia. You remember the, the professional lady who traded in purple dye and uh, was at the riverside as a lover of God, but not a believer. And when Paul began to speak to her from the Scriptures about Christ, the Lord opened Lydia's heart. And I'm sure Lydia, I'm sure Lydia never thought, people don't think, we, of course we don't think this, whoops, the Lord is opening my heart. All we find is that something, there's something happening. There's something attracting. There's something as has changed our very affections. You know, when, when this stranger appeared, we were kind of, we were, we were disconsolate, and, and maybe we were verge, verging, as, as you can imagine, in their grief and sorrow they were doing, they were verging on a, a tense conversation with one another. And the verb that's used speaks about, about throwing things over, over, over to one another. And it may just mean a conversation. I suspect it means more. But now they've had a completely different experience. But what's happening here? Well, notice what's happening. When Jesus spoke to them, first of all, he said, Oh, you silly billies. You have been slow of heart. As far as the truth of the gospel has been concerned, they've been, they've been walking through mud. Their hearts are downcast. Their understanding is clouded. Their future looks dim. But now their hearts have been melted their hearts are burning. 
And that, I think, reminds us of a wonderful text in the Old Testament that was also spoken about Jesus. That a dimly burning wick he would not snuff out. That's that's what Jesus is like. I think Luke is saying this. Theophilus, this is what Jesus was like, and he's still like this. He doesn't snuff out dimly burning wicks, and these two were dimly burning wicks. They had a hope in Jesus that was almost extinguished, but instead of snuffing it out, the Lord Jesus fanned it into a flame within them, and they tell us that their hearts were burning within them. So, recognition was withheld the Scriptures were expounded, their hearts burned, and then, fourthly, their eyes were opened. And uh, how were their eyes opened? Well, look at verse 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Now, it's interesting to, uh, to notice the way in which they comment on this. They comment on this by, by saying that their hearts were burning within them, verse 32, when He talked with them on the road and while He opened to us the Scriptures. And if you just look on to the next little section later on in the evening, you'll notice a slightly fuller description of the same thing. Uh, Verse 44, Jesus says, Everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And just at this point, when all of this is true, minds open to understand the Scriptures as Jesus has been showing them Himself in the Old Testament, hearts burning because of His presence, then Luke tells us hey, it's, they, they had not noticed the passage of time. Some sermons are like that, aren't they? Not all sermons, and I can't tell about this sermon But some sermons are like that, just like some conversations are like that. When you get caught up with someone else, you just don't know. Time really does become relative, and I suppose it had become very relative for them. And uh, they realized that the sun was going down, and they were almost home. And I think the sense of what Luke says is this. Jesus pretended he was just going to go on further. Jesus pretended He was just going to go on further. He knew what He was going to do. He didn't always tell people what He was going to do. That's another interesting thing you find in the Gospels. He knew what He was going to do, but so, please wait. Please come in. We don't have much at home. We've been away, but anything we have, we want to share with you. And uh, he stops and and he comes in. Now, Now, why did Jesus give them the indication that he was just going to continue? 
well, think about what's happening here. Because in this experience of coming to now a living faith in Jesus Christ, Luke is telling us there are, there are three dimensions to it. One is that our minds are opened to understand the Scriptures, and, and it begins to make sense to us. The other is that something happens to our affections. We we didn't want this, but now we want it. We didn't want these people who are Christians, but, but now we, we, we want them. We want to be with them. So, the mind is illumined, the affections are warmed, but then there's a, there's a third element. And uh, the third element is that our will desires and is committed to Christ. And I think that's what's happening here. That in a sense, what Jesus is doing is He's… You're not a Christian because you understand the gospel. You're not a Christian because when you hear about the gospel, your heart's strangely warmed. You only really become a Christian when you want Jesus Christ. And that's what they were saying to him now. We want you to stay Jesus. And it's very interesting that it's when those, when Christ had done all that in their hearts, it was time for him uh, to do something one might say providentially that turned on the light. It didn't actually happen, as I said, during the sermon. It happened because of something that, that happened after the sermon. It was something about the way he did things. And that's not at all unusual. Not at all unusual. My guess is today, most people who come to faith in Jesus Christ do not come to faith in Jesus Christ during sermons. But Christ does something afterwards, and the sermon, and the Savior, and the people, and my burning heart, and my opened mind, and my different attitude to the Bible, they all seem to fit into place. And we tell Christ that He is the desire of our hearts to be our Savior. And their eyes were opened. It's lovely, isn't it? Um, I mean, the, the man was a… Luke, I mean, was a, a genius at telling stories. Uh, has it ever struck you as being really interesting that the only one of the four Gospels that has the parable of the prodigal son is Luke's Gospel? and the Good Samaritan. There's something about him that, that was drawn to the stories that Jesus told and the story of Jesus' life. And this is why I think he tells that story on a journey and then tells another little journey story that opens the eyes of people who may well have been with Jesus on that journey to discover who he really was. And the result 
Recognition was withheld. The Scriptures were expounded. Their hearts burned. Their eyes were opened. And their lives were transformed. And he gives us a little indication of this. So, you've just gone seven miles on a dusty road in a morning spirit on a Sunday afternoon. My friends, bread and cheese is not going to give you enough energy to look at one another and say, okay, we're going back. And that journey back to Jerusalem is the indication that their lives had been enlivened by Christ, that they knew He was alive, that they trusted Him. And uh, my guess is they were very lighthearted and very light-spirited. Their shoulders did not droop all the way back. My guess is, actually, if there was any disappointment that evening, because it must have been dark by this time, it was when they knocked on the door, and the door opened, and there were a lot fewer people in the room than are here in church tonight, and they were just about to say, we've met Jesus, and whoever opened the door said, Jesus is alive. You mean… We weren't the first to know. And if you know anything about the Old Testament and indeed about contemporary Judaism of a Hasidic sort, you know what Jewish people love to do. They love to dance. And it wouldn't surprise me there was a resurrection dance party. Now, the dancing is very different from what's in your mind it's not even Scottish country dancing. But the joy that fills this story is an indication of how their lives had been so marvelously transformed. Luke explains the meaning of the journey to Jerusalem in the journey to Emmaus. He explains the meaning of the whole gospel in Jesus teaching them the gospel that Sunday afternoon. One of the commentators uh, who has translated the whole of the New Testament um, has a very interesting translation of the words uh, in verse 32, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? and he translates it, and uh, some of you will get the point of the translation. He translates it, were not our hearts strangely warmed as he talked to us on the road. Some of you know where that comes from, a man called John Wesley in the 18th century, an Anglican minister, but who did not know Christ. He went to Georgia that's Georgia in the United States, to be a kind of evangelist minister. He wrote in his journal, my chief motive is the hope of saving my own soul. I hope to learn the true sense of the gospel by preaching it to the heathen. And he wrote a few years later, if it be said that I have faith for many such things have I heard from many miserable comforters, I answer, so have the devils. I want, I lack that faith that none can have without knowing he has it. 
And then later that year, uh, in wonderfully famous words, he writes in his journal, 24th May, 1738, in the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street in London, where one was reading from Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, in Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that He had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. I then testified to all what I first felt in my heart. And his brother Charles, the great hymn writer, was sick, and he was in bed at home. But the day before, he had written two famous hymns, one, And Can It Be That I Should Gain an Interest in the Savior's Blood? And Charles Wesley wrote in his journal, Towards ten my brother was brought in triumph by a troop of friends and declared, I believe. We sang the hymn with great joy and parted with prayer. What happened to these two? Happened to these two. And although God uses uh, different providences in our lives, the experience of these two is fairly characteristic, isn't it? That first of all, our, our eyes are closed, and it's not that we just don't understand the gospel, it's that we don't see we need the gospel, and we don't like the gospel, and we don't want the gospel. And then all unknown to us, he draws near, and he has his questions, and they, they create questions and conversation in our own mind. He does it in, in different ways by his invisible, hidden presence. He, he stimulates issues and questions, concerns we never really cared about. And then somehow or another in God's providence, we we find ourselves, we want to know what's in the Bible. Some of you know the story of David Suchet, the great English actor, uh, acting in a play on Broadway in his hotel room, gripped with a desire to read the Bible. He knows that usually hotels have a Bible. This hotel has no Bible. He goes downstairs, he wanders around the Broadway area, going into shops, do you sell Bibles here? He, he gets a Bible, takes it away. He opens it up kind of randomly, and he begins to read through Paul's letter to the Romans, and then professes himself to be a believer in Jesus Christ. All kinds of ways, all kinds of people but so often this pattern, eyes are blind, Jesus probes, Jesus teaches. Something happens to us, something changes in us. And then perhaps comes a, a moment when, when we know the issue is, do I want Christ or do I not want Christ? They, 
the hour of decision comes for us. And as we want Him, our lives are transformed. And we find ourselves in a company of people whose lives were transformed, and who in turn within a relatively short period of time became a company of people who transformed the whole of the Roman Empire, company of people who have transformed whole nations because Jesus Christ has come along beside them, drawn them to Himself. That's what makes Easter Sunday glorious, but glorious only in the sense that for Christians it's like every other Sunday, every other day, living in the presence of Jesus Christ. So, do we know anything about this? Have our hearts been strangely warmed, beginning to understand the message of the Bible and finding that we want Jesus Christ more than anything else in all the world? That's the big thing. I remember as a 14-year-old boy in the middle of winter sliding on the ice having just started to go to church on Sunday evenings, seeking Christ. And this strange little man in a black coat stopped beside me, saw the Bible in my hand, looked up into my face, and said, are you saved, son? Are you saved? And I remember saying to him, I don't think so, but I want to be more than anything else in the world. And he pointed me to Jesus Christ. How about you? Your heart strangely warmed. Then come. Trust Him. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You again that You have taught us the gospel in so many different ways. Uh, you've taught us the gospel in great statements, in logical arguments, and sometimes in passages like this by, by simply eavesdropping on the experience of others. And we know for some of us in this room that's how we actually became Christians ourselves. We, we were eavesdropping on the story that someone else told and and we knew that we didn't understand, but we found ourselves wanting to know more, strangely drawn, sometimes arguing bitterly. And then through Your Word, coming to understand who Christ is and what He has done for us, and then being challenged uh, with the cost of discipleship, whether we wanted Him or wanted Him not and have wanted Him more than anything and anyone else in the whole world. Oh, may that be true for all of us here this evening, we pray, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.